The Start On Demand. Hi there, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start, Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Today we're going to talk about electric cars. Polo Park, right outside the shopping mall, there is a charging station, a fast charging station for electric cars. So we'll talk about whether or not you would consider getting an electric car. We're also going to talk about a television show that recently debuted on APTN. It's a three-part series called First Contact. It takes seven Canadians with negative views about Indigenous people and immerses them in that community and in that culture. It's meant to be a show about reconciliation. Well, there's an author, a renowned Cree author, who doesn't like it. And he's going to tell us and tell you why. Former Mayor Glenn Murray is in town. He's the keynote speaker at a Livable City conference hosted by the Winnipeg Chamber. And he's got some thoughts on how Winnipeg has progressed since he was the mayor. And he's going to tell you why he thinks Portage in Maine should be open. And he's got some pretty compelling arguments. Regardless of what side you're on, what team you're on, it's hard to ignore what he has to say. Reggie Cicchini's in Washington, where stuff continues to hit the fan. And the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra this weekend has an incredible show lined up for you involving the Beatles. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Fast charging electric vehicle station at Polo Park is Manitoba's first. That's the headline at CJOB.com. Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte having coffee. Talking electric cars. Kelly Moore, would you get an electric car? D- would I or Yeah, did, would yeah. you? Uh, we've been thinking about it. Really? For the, yeah, for the last one. You know, our cars are, well, mine's almost paid off. My wife's has been paid off for a while now. So when you don't have that car payment, and the car runs fine. And, you know, we were just talking off the air about oil changes and that. Uh, one thing we do, we make the investment to uh, to look after our vehicles. Uh, so they've lasted us a while. So I just, but I think if we do go to trade in, Brett, that we'll probably take a look at, if not an electric car, certainly a hybrid. They are very expensive, but they do pay off in the long run. Yeah, we, uh, we got a text here from Mark, uh, who is saying, as far as the electric is concerned, he says, and we'd have to check this, of course, but without incentives in Manitoba, it would take 6 to 12 years to break even yeah. at 16,000 kilometers per year of driving. But if you're hanging on to that vehicle, as you said, beyond well beyond its yeah. car payment, then that would certainly pay out. But also, I like, personally drive way more than 16,000 kilometers per year, so it depends on... What your commute is, where you're right. going. Well, like, and the price of gas is, yeah. you know, uh, wait yeah, till gas gets to buck eighty or two dollars a liter. I mean, uh, that could be in our future, right? So yeah. that could be an absolute game changer. It's more of a trust thing for me because I we've been talking about it a lot, but I always just I keep thinking about batteries in winter and how they last, and, well, and I know, know they keep saying it's fine. I know that, but I'm imagining myself on the highway in minus forty. And that battery just going the same way my cell phone still does. Yeah, that was the education I received yesterday listening to Robert Elms with Julie and Richard and found out a few things about electric cars that I did not know. And one of them was 
they start on a dime in the winter, whereas, uh, you know, unless you're you're pumping in the synthetic oil into mm-hmm. your car and, and doing the proper, uh, uh, you know, heating of it and that sort of thing overnight, uh, that, yeah, it, uh, it, I would have thought the same thing, that it would uh, maybe have a little bit of trouble starting. The only thing I would worry about is, like, going on a long highway trip, knowing where these chargers are and that, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, because that would... Seems like a horrible mess to all of a sudden have the thing just die on you in the middle of Saskatchewan, where I assume there are no chargers. Yeah, yeah. you'd really have to do your research, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. not like you can you can sort of roll the dice when you've got a little bit of gas, because eventually yeah. you're going to find a gas station yeah. uh, sooner or later, yeah. even on the highway. But, well, even on the highway, though, you might be in a stretch where... Ooh. Sure. Oh, oh you go through northern Ontario if you're driving to <laughs> Toronto from Thunder Bay to Sault Ste. Marie. There's a stretch there where... No cell service. Yeah. I think it's three hours without any gas station on the side of the road. I ended up sleeping in a gas station parking lot in <laughs> Verdon, Manitoba. Because, waiting for it to open. <laughs> waiting for it to open because we passed through Brandon and my buddy Harry says, should we get gas? I'm like, Verdon's the oil capital of Manitoba. We don't need gas in Brandon. We got to Verdon at 4 a.m. I guess we'll have a little two and a half hour nap here in the 30 below. That was yeah. very comfy. But it probably only is a matter of time before of it's the chargers sure. just show up everywhere. And you could even just put them in the put them on the side of the road at a rest stop or something. Yeah, and and whoever made the the comment about you know as the price of gas goes up, that will then. I think result in more electric charging stations being installed because then they'll it, it, it'll be warranted. And the, the new vehicle, I think I read, was thirty eight thousand or forty thousand dollars for the Bolt. Was that what we were talking about this morning? The Bolt, uh, the, the Chevy, the, the Kia Bolt. Soul electric vehicle version is starts at thirty five eight nine five. The Nissan Leaf starts at thirty six three ninety eight, and the Chevy Bolt starts Bolt. at forty four four. Right, yeah. brand new. Brand new, yeah. because yeah, I also have a friend who bought it used, um, and I'm, I think it was the Bolt, and uh, huge savings once it was two years off the, the mm-hmm. lot, and then now he has the gas savings as well, and so if you're looking at it that way, but then if you buy them used, the battery life is already... You got about, might, yeah, you've got about 10 years, and then you've got to swap out the battery, and that's a, a fairly large investment, so yeah, there, there's no question a big part of this is... A personal choice, right, mm-hmm. of not wanting to use gasoline. And so they're counting on part of that being a, a major part of your, of, your, uh, of your decision. Yeah, and once that carbon tax goes in, and who knows, yeah. you know, once yeah. it's there, yeah. then how often will that get jacked up? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's why there needs to be, I mean, there's all the talk about what are they going to do with that revenue, and can they put it back in? Can there not maybe be subsidies for people who want to buy electric cars, like use the money sure. for an incentive so then your carbon footprint goes down. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people questioning the reliability and the cold and everything. New Flyer's been running these buses on the Watt, the number 20 Academy Watt. They've got the charging station at the airport. It charges the bus in 10 minutes. As far as I know, they've never had to tow one. Yeah. In 10 so the buses years. charge in 10 minutes, but yet these fast charging stations for the Nissan Leaf, for example, takes a half an hour to get it up to 80%. Well, have you seen the charging station at the uh, airport? It's like a great big thing that lives on the, the, they pull the bus and it goes up on the roof, right? And so it's charging, you know, it it, it's take, got a lot of capacity there. Yeah. It'd take several minutes to fill up a bus with gas, right? So that's, Oh, yeah, like, exactly. That's yeah, not much difference, right? And then they're talking about the possibility of being able to put the charge charging inside the road, like in something like a, a transit way, where they're constantly charging the buses. And that's probably the future as well. 
And, you know, and, and, yeah, exactly. As technology advances, I mean, I just saw an ad- advertisement for a place that can make a pizza in two uh, minutes and 15 <laughs> seconds. So if they can do that with pizza, you, they should be able to make it so you can charge up in two there to three minutes. There it is. Science right there Science. with Kelly Moore. Kelly Moore style. <laughs> Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, thank you very much. Right now, we want to talk about something we talked about, I guess, about a month ago as we teed up this new series from APTN. Yeah, First Contact. It's been uh, showing uh, they did an extended run of it, started last Wednesday on APTN, and I believe it's now available online if you'd like to catch up on it. And uh, the producers have been absolutely thrilled by the response to this production, I've spoken to at least one person that works at APTN. They've been overwhelmed by the response to this program, but it's not been unanimous, Brett. This idea that this is the way to tell the story and to create a sense and a platform for reconciliation. So let's first hear a bit of what the trailer sounds like, just to give you an, an idea of what this show is about. I think of alcoholism. Drug abuse, a whole bunch of partying and flop houses. They just always get money and, and handouts. How are they the worst off when they're given so much? We are being made to pay for something that we didn't do. Where's my money going? They don't paint their houses, they don't uh, fix windows. Welfare's not a career. They're angry at white people. I mean, they want you to feel sorry for them. Get off your ass if you're unhappy and go do something about it feels like it's just a lost cause at this point. I would like to take this opportunity to welcome all of you to my community so that you can see with your own eyes, experience with your own bodies, and feel with your own hearts what this community is really about. This could be not so bad, it could be good, or it could be like, holy, what did I just sign up for? I have not been to a reservation ever. We are going to stick out like sore thugs. So that is, as Brett mentioned, that's uh, some sound from First Contact. You can see it, like I said, on APTN. And one of the individuals who's not necessarily very happy about how this show is portraying the idea of reconciliation is author David Ro- David Robertson. David is a uh, Cree descent. Uh, he just won an award for a book, When We Were Alone. He's published over 25 books. He likes to have conversation about reconciliation and what it should look like. And Loren and I caught up with him yesterday, and we start on the fact that he isn't necessarily pleased with the way this is tebe- depicted. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly disappointing to hear about the construct of the show and how how it was being presented. Um, it's not that, you know, obviously I do a lot of work in reconciliation, and so I think it's vitally important. Um, I think that the way that they're doing it in this show is problematic, for sure. So, David, I have to confess, when, when I first heard about the show, we spoke about it on our program. We brought it to light with our listeners, and I thought it was a positive thing that we'd be having a conversation about uh, behind-the-scenes look at the way Indigenous Canadians live, some of the some of the, the fallacies that non-Indigenous Canadians have about Indigenous Canadians, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to break down some of those barriers. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that some of the truths in the show, uh, especially what I've heard about the show, 
they are important to be shared. I think that what, what the problem that I had was that it sets an expectation of what reconciliation looks like. And so what you have is um, six Canadians who are being brought around to these First Nations communities and introduced to First Nations people. Um, and everything is being done for them. So um, the, the, the work of reconciliation, the burden of it is being rested on the shoulders of Indigenous peoples and communities. And that, that sort of feeds into the sense of entitlement, I think, that we need to step away from, where reconciliation, to me, is this collaborative effort, where everybody needs to understand that the role that they have, and we need to enter into that role, that whatever that role might look like for us, um, understanding that we have work to do as well. And this show, I think, is setting up um, an ideal of reconciliation, that is, that we have all the work to do as Indigenous peoples. And... Um, historically, I think that uh, that is shown to be um, a problem, and I think it will create more work going forward uh, in how this show is presenting it. Um, and that's that's you know that's my view on it, and um, the work that I've done um, going out to schools and communities and 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 sharing these truths. Um, I have seen that the process looks a little bit different from my from my perspective, and so I, I just think it creates a false expectation of what it should be. Meaning that what we see or what the perceptions are or what the stereotypes are aren't on the, don't lay those at the feet of the Indigenous community to break down those stereotypes, see for yourself that they weren't perhaps true to begin with? Is that more what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that, you know, so it's not up to us and it shouldn't be up to us to prove to somebody that we aren't the stereotype that they believe in, you know. And I think that's that's really important distinction about this show is that um, it's not, it shouldn't be our responsibility to prove our worth. Um, and, and this show is asking Indigenous peoples and, and Indigenous communities to prove to these Canadians, these six participants in the show, that we are not the stereotype. And I just don't think that, that it should be an expectation that we should, um, be, should be set upon us. And I think that show, this show does that. Um, and, and while you know, I respect a lot of the people involved in this show, like I know Michael and I know Kevin Lamru. And I, I, they do a really important work. I just think that um, someone who watches this show may may come to understand reconciliation differently than how it should really look. Uh, and for me, how it looks is, you know, kind of what we're doing right now. Um, you know, we're 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 not sitting across from each other, but we're on the phone with each other, and we're having an open dialogue. Uh, we're 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 learning and listening to each other. And and so what I, I feel um, comes from that is that. Um, when you're given that gift of knowledge, uh, when I tell you things about Indigenous cultures and history and communities and the contemporary issues that we deal with, um, that then you can then share that knowledge with somebody else who needs to understand something that, that they don't. Um, and I think the outcomes of the show um, in the very close interim of when it come out, um, I think that we've seen that it's not something that's kind of happening in the way that they thought maybe it would have. Um, you know, I think that I, one of the participants' boyfriends was on Twitter um, saying completely racist things to a lot of people who had valid arguments against the show. And then I wonder what that process had looked like for them. You know what I mean? So um, Jamie Sue, who's on the show, 
might have had a conversation with her boyfriend about this process, about reconciliation, mm-hmm. and then those views may have changed uh, on the boyfriend's part. And that's, that's what it looks like for me, is that we share knowledge with each other, and we learn from each other, and our perceptions change based on those truths. And that is the voice of award-winning author David A. Robertson. His uh, book, we were When We Were Alone, is the recipient of the Governor General's Literary Award, McNally Robinson Best Book for Young People winner, and the TD Canadian Children's Literature Award finalist. We were in conversation yesterday, and we're bringing that discussion to you today about First Contact, the APT and reality series, really, is what you could call it, is uh, Canadians that uh, have a negative view of Indigenous Canadians were taken on an adventure across Canada to see the way of life of Indigenous Canadians. It started in Winnipeg, and there has been a lot of positive reaction to this program, Brett, but uh, David Robertson is a little concerned that this is the way we need to go about re- reconciliation. Now we want to introduce one of the former mayors of Winnipeg. He's Glenn in town Murray. today. Yeah, Glenn Murray. He was the mayor of Winnipeg from 1998 to 2004. Uh, mayor Murray's in town for Liba- Livable Cities Conference taking place this morning, and he's managed to fit us into his schedule. Good morning, former Mayor Murray. Good morning. How are things at CJOB? Fantastic. Just as you left yeah. them oh so many years ago, uh, Glenn. Thanks for taking some time with us and uh, really appreciate you uh, uh, making uh, making the time. Uh, lots of things to discuss in terms of livable cities, but I just, since we have just a few minutes with you, I want to go back in time and, and realize I can uh, recall a presentation you gave to the chamber, one of your luncheons years ago, that, that painted a picture of the Winnipeg of the future with the with, uh, a variety of uh, tall buildings where where they didn't stand at that point in time, and some of those are coming to fruition. Some of them may be delayed somewhat, and some of the other projects that that were born during your administration have, have certainly become a, a part of the the landscape and part of life here in Winnipeg. None larger than Bell MTS Place. I want to ask you two questions. Uh, the first one: How did you feel watching the NHL playoffs last year, and the and the fervor and excitement <laughs> that was was created by the return of the NHL then uh, to NHL playoff success for the Jets? You must have had some pride in that. Oh, it was huge. I, I mean, it was great. It was amazing working with Mark Chipman um, and David Thompson and the City Council and the Premier and putting that together. It was an extraordinary. And, and to see the Jets come back was pretty exciting. And to see the success of it, I think that first seed, I think, is about the third highest ranked facility in North America for generating revenue. And the team's fabulous. It's so exciting to see it back. And and to just walk through downtown Winnipeg, see the Human Rights Museum and the bridge and Waterfront Drive, it's uh, Phenomenal city. So, uh, take uh, and if there's confidentiality here, I understand. But uh, I've uh, through the years heard that it was the city of Winnipeg that insisted that arena be fifteen thousand seats, not the twelve thousand seat arena that maybe had been discussed when that project was was first envisioned by True North. Any truth to that? You know, it was really Mark and. Uh, I mean, the story was before I got elected mayor, Mark Chipman and Jeff, his brother Jeff and I went out to the fixed coffee shop and had a long conversation about where that arena could go. And I think the original idea was to put it uh, 
uh, sort of south of the convention center near what was then the North American Life Building, but the province owned that land. Uh, it was the uh, Workers' Compensation Board, and the chair at the time didn't want to sell us the land. So it ended up on the Eaton site really as the second best alternative and the fact that uh, the Thompson family that owned it was interested in potentially putting that asset uh, into an arena. And on that site, you had a number of different options. And when we looked at the success of other small markets like Pittsburgh, uh, Green Bay, they had what I would call right-sized arenas. They weren't too big. And the the NHL at the time was insisting on an 18,000-seat arena. And through Mark's persuasion, we looked at, we realized that the the, the average attendance for an NHL game was 13,000 and that a 15,000-seat arena would probably work better economically. And the other thing is it's got a lot more premium seats. So it doesn't have the big boxes that, the you know, the Air Canada Centre has, but it's got a lot more premium seats really tailored to mid-sized businesses, which make up the people who can carry the freight. And uh, so the design of that facility is really uniquely styled for Winnipeg. And I think it's been successful because it was a made-in-Winnipeg design. So the conference being hosted by the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce, uh, building a smart, livable Winnipeg for the 21st century. I'm sure you're aware that uh, of the, the plebiscite happening in our civic election this fall on Portage and Maine. Wondering if you have an opinion you'd care to share on Portage and Maine and the reopening. Well, if you read the free press today, an op-ed that I wrote on that. Yeah, I, I think it's the biggest hold back to growth in the economy. I, I live in Calgary half time and live in Toronto half time, and everyone I know who comes to Winnipeg says two things: the city's beautiful, the museum, the arena, the city's just rocking it. But what the heck is this Portage and Main thing? You can't cross the street; it's ugly. Uh, the rest of the city's so beautiful; it's holding it back. It's also probably one of the biggest things for 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 many people who live in residential and suburban neighborhoods. It's holding the, the downtown tax base down. If you could actually restore that intersection to you know being the exciting corner it used to be a, a source of pride, the hallmark of the city, um, you would you would see significant growth in the value of property. You'd attract a lot more capital investment and you would see a rapid growth in the tax base. People may remember in 2000 and, and 2001, a 2% property tax cut that council passed that year became a 4% property tax cut, basically because all of those investments in the downtown that were being made uh, saw such growth in the commercial uh assessment in the city that when the when the business assessment grows it automatically shrinks the amount of money that has to come from the residential sector so people in the suburbs got a four percent property tax cut that year so you know if you don't care about portage in maine you know vote vote in the referendum to open it up because you'll be voting to build the tax base and to reduce the tax burden for yourself there are a lot of people that that don't buy that argument. I'm not one of them. We just heard uh, from the uh, from the from the executive uh, in charge of Harvard Developments. Uh, we played some audio earlier this morning. That that vacant lot that exists just north of 201 Portage. They feel that the fact that intersection isn't open to pedestrians is a big barrier in terms of them developing that lot. Uh, d- should this be going to a plebiscite, Mayor Murray or former Mayor Murray? Is this something that that well, it should know, be going to the populace? I, I, I think, well, I mean, I, when I was mayor, we had a plan to open it up with the support of the business community. And, and I was being told at the time that if I wanted as mayor to attract more capital to, to our city, and, uh, then we had to open it up. There were just, it just stranded all those lands. It prevents them from being developed. And that's some of the most valuable land in the city. And Mayor Bowman's come to the same conclusion. He's right on. He understands 
that if we're going to grow our tax base and take and reduce our tax burden over time, we can't sit there with our most important land undeveloped. And when you look at the east side of, of, of Main Street around Portage, if you look at the land, prime land right at the corner of Portage, Main that's sitting there vacant, that tells you how much it's, it's holding it back. And if you think about how many you know, hundreds of hectares of, of, of residential suburban housing uh, you know, is equivalent to, to the taxes of one good-sized office building. One good-sized good size office building pays more property taxes than several hectares of suburban residential development. And a city's financial sustainability depends on the strength of its downtown business core and its commercial tax base. And Portage and Maine is simply the biggest detriment, I think, in the downtown to real economic growth and to real growth in the tax base. And it, it increases the tax burden on everybody if you don't get that commercial tax base growth. Former Mayor Glenn Murray, thank you so much for joining us. We very much appreciate the visit. Good to hear your voice again. It's great to be home. Thank you very much. Right now, Greg, we want to talk about stuff that's going on in Washington. Yeah, no shortage of things to discuss down in Washington. Reggie Cicchini, Global National, is there. Reggie, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking some time with us. Uh, Donald Trump is not in the nation's capital. He is in the Carolinas uh, viewing firsthand the devastation of Hurricane Florence. What is happening on Capitol Hill today is absolutely captivating, has the in, entire nation and a lot of Canada talking. Uh, absolutely, yeah. The confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh continues to sit on hold right now. Uh, the judge was actually supposed to go up for a vote tomorrow. That's now been canceled. It's because sexual assault allegations have been uh, brought against him by a woman it, uh, from an alleged incident that happened more than 30 years ago. There's now an opportunity for the both of them to testify uh, before the Judiciary Committee on Monday. Brett Kavanaugh says he's ready to go. The uh, woman who's brought these accusations forward doesn't want to testify. Her lawyer says they want the FBI to get involved first. Now, the U.S. Senate Republicans are suggesting uh, that she'll have just one chance to testify about her allegation. Why are they going out of their way to make this suggestion? Well, look, Republicans want to get this nomination through as fast as they can. You, like this, this is uh, they want to get it done basically before the midterms come and go because there's a risk of them losing the House. They say that the accusations have been brought forward. The timing was uh, was suspicious in their eyes. Uh, the the female decided to take herself away from anonymity just a couple of days ago. So they said Monday is the opportunity for you to do this. But the lawyer is saying, look, we don't want to have to have to uh, sit and testify. We want the FBI to look into this. The Republicans are calling it a delay tactic on the Democrats' part for backing this. Democrats are saying Republicans, by telling uh, this woman that she has to come on Monday, you're basically saying speak up or don't speak up at all and don't come forward. So there's a lot of back and forth on the Hill right now. And Brett Kavanaugh is the one caught in the middle of this, you know, when it comes to his confirmation. What's the over response in the U.S. Uh, to this stand by the Republicans? I know this is a moving target because just yesterday afternoon we heard from Dr. Ford, Kristen, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, the, uh, the woman that we're speaking of, uh, suggest and had her, her lawyer come forward and, and outline exactly what you outlined for us, Reggie. The, the idea uh, that the Democrats are politicizing this, but the idea that the Republicans are putting some sort of time limit on this woman's comfort level to come forward and speak, uh, is there pushback on that? 
Well, I mean, there's pushback in this entire uh, confirmation process since it started back in July. But with these new allegations brought forward, the Democrats are saying we can't rush through this. If this was any other victim who had come forward alleging somebody with sexual assault, we would want to investigate this. But the Republicans say you had an opportunity to tell us about this months ago. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein had the information given to her, but it was under anonymity. The female didn't want to come forward. Now that she has, Democrats are saying we have an opportunity to investigate this. Republicans and people standing close to the president simply say there is no more time. We've given all the time that we can. We already had a vote scheduled. We're going to give them Monday to speak. And if they don't want to speak, we're going to have to go forward with that vote. The problem is, is that even if a couple of moderate senators decide that they don't like this idea and they don't want to vote for Brett Kavanaugh, his nomination will be over. Speaking of senators, Orrin Hatch has been quoted as saying that Kavanaugh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, wasn't even at that party. Has Kavanaugh said that himself? And if so, Reggie, does that lower the bar in terms of perjury and in terms of lying under oath and in front of this Judiciary Committee? Yeah, well, a couple of days ago, Brett Kavanaugh spent the majority of his day inside the White House calling senators, trying to defend himself and give uh, his interpretation of what the situation is and how he wasn't at that party. The problem is, is he's really backing himself into a corner here. He says that he wasn't at the party and he says that the event never took place. You know, there are a number of people that have come forward to back Dr. Ford's story to say, look, this did happen. Uh, She says that there was another person in the room. He says he doesn't really remember that. He doesn't remember the night in question, though, if an FBI investigation were to kickstart and and Brett Kavanaugh was to be investigated, he does run the risk of perjuring himself because he's now said two different stories that will be almost impossible for him to back away from. And she's since she's come out with this and identified herself, her lawyers are saying she's been the target of some rather vicious harassment. Well, she's being attacked from uh, members of the Republican Party. She's being attacked from people in the community. She's being not so much attacked by the president, but he's put very clearly putting his support behind uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Yesterday in the White House, he was saying he feels very badly for Judge Kavanaugh, for his wife and for his children, and that he hopes that the, quote, other party will come forward to speak. Uh, this is how the president typically acts when there's, uh, you know, a case of, uh, of sexual assault or a sexual misconduct against somebody that he's backed. We've seen this before with Roy Moore. Uh, we've seen this before with other members of the political community, the president will throw his support behind the person who's being accused and not the victim. You just mentioned the president. Is this quote accurate uh, with regard to Hurricane Florence? One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. This was a bizarre little rant that the president did on the front lawn of the White House yesterday. They posted it to Twitter late last night, and it was basically the second or third line that he said. As he said it, they put a picture of a car in water saying that Hurricane Florence, yes, was the was the wettest in, in the standpoint from water. It was a bizarre comment. People are looking and saying, well, was this the windiest from the point of a hurricane? Was this, you know, something else from the standpoint of something else? The president, you know, is again kind of losing his grasp on reality when it comes to what a natural disaster is. He's trying to either lighten the situation up or speak to it the way that he can. I mean, he's already taking a lot of heat from the Puerto Rico disaster that happened with Hurricane Maria. He's now, you know, there's fear that he's going to diminish this, uh, you know, as much as he usually does. Well, he's touring North Carolina, South Carolina today. We'll see what he has to say. We'll see if it's scripted or if he's off the cuff. Reggie, just want to quickly touch on one more thing. Ontario Premier Doug Ford's in Washington. 
He is. He made the announcement a couple of days ago that he'd be heading down to the embassy. Uh, trade talks are set to start up again. NAFTA negotiations. Uh, Foreign Minister Freeland is back in Washington today to kickstart those negotiations. Doug Ford says that he's coming down to uh, the Washington area to kind of ensure that Ontarians aren't going to be affected negatively. However, these NAFTA renegotiations are going. Uh, it should be noted that when Doug Ford took office back in June, he actually closed Ontario's trade office in Washington. So now he's down here trying to do all the work by himself. It's not sure or we're not sure what he can actually accomplish being down here. He doesn't have any public meeting scheduled. It's basically just a couple of one-on-ones with inside officials and he may scrum afterwards. But down here for the day and we'll see what he has to say afterwards. Reggie Cicchini, thank you for this. As always, we appreciate you keeping the pulse on what's happening in Washington, D.C. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Mackling McGarry, sort of McNabb today. She's off at the convention center doing a Habitat for Humanity, hosting their breakfast today for their women's build. And uh, our guest, Julian Pelicano, president conductor at the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. The reason why Julian is here is because something happening this weekend. It is Classical Mystery Tour, a tribute to the Beatles, happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Centennial Concert Hall. And Julian is here to tell us about this event. So who is the, like, you've got four guys pictured on your website, wso.ca. Who is this act that's sort of leading this charge? Well, the Classical Mystery Tour, are these are mu- incredible musicians who are dedicated to the music of the Beatles, and they have been for a very, very long time. These guys have been playing Beatles music since the late 70s, and it was in the late 90s that they created this show with orchestra in order to highlight this incredible thing that the Beatles did that a lot of other bands never really explored, is that using the instruments of the orchestra and actually having a live 40-piece orchestra in the studio um, to record with them. And that's one of the things that makes those Beatles songs so amazing and gives them that incredible third dimension is that those other instruments that you don't expect, like the harpsichord, the piccolo trumpet, the strings, the string quartet, all those all those little details, um, that's what these guys wanted to do. And they're amazing. They sound like the Beatles. They look like the Beatles. They're experts and dedicated to this music. They're the best in the world, and we're bringing them to Winnipeg. So we always talk about the the revolution that the Beatles created in terms of rock and roll and popular music overall, but part of the success really is embedded in their willingness to be experimental, not only with traditional, what we think of as traditional rock and roll instruments now, but Indian music and, you know, the you just outlined a bunch yeah. of instruments really that you don't associate normally with rock and roll. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not they the time period that they were actually together wasn't incredibly long. No. But the 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 transformation from the very beginning when they were playing like, you know, really early rock and roll and skiffle to the end uh, when they had Ravi Shankar on stage with them with the sitar. I mean, and it's. It's so it's crazy to imagine how open-minded they were and how musical they were. How much of an influence Beatles music on you personally, Julian? 
Well, I I can't I can't say I grew up with the Beatles because I wasn't born yet, to be perfectly honest. I wasn't but, either, but my dad played it. Yeah, and my, my mom, dad, and I went to see Hard Day's Night, and and so my, my you know Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl was always on the turntable at my house. Right. It wasn't. My mom liked the Beatles, but she wasn't super into the Beatles. And my dad, I don't think he knew one thing from the other. He wasn't into it. So, uh, but my sister liked the Beatles, so I heard it. I knew the music. I knew it was good. And once I once I had sort of a a little bit more sophisticated musical sense. Uh, when as I got older, I could uh, could recognize immediately that this is incredible music. So I mean, um, I, I have a great respect for what they did. So the Beatles, uh, when you think of the way that they evolved musically over the years, uh, such a drastic evolution as well. When you think of other bands like ACDC, for example, that really hasn't changed at all. They do what they do, and they do it very well. Right, uh, but yeah. then you've got a band like the Beatles that was not afraid to experiment and to change things up. Can you think of any other musical acts off the top of your head that maybe have had a similar trajectory in terms of the the way that they changed over the years? Because I sure can't. No, I can't. I really can't. Uh, they're so unique in that way. I mean, I'm sure if I really thought about it for a while, I may be able to come up with something even close. But given the short time that they work together, I can't think of anybody. We've discussed quite often when you come here that uh, marrying of popular music with symphonic music. And uh, Metallica was just here the other night. And one of my favorite specials is when they perform with the San Francisco Symphony and uh, or the San Francisco Philharmonic. And and that ability and, and Brett points out that, you know, heavy metal and that hard rock music kind of has its basis in symphonic music. So there's a, there, there can be a, a, a spectacular marriage at times. Oh, that's that's amazing you mentioned that. You know, I love that San Francisco Symphony uh, uh, concert that they did. I thought that was amazing. And I know for a fact, especially among percussionists and drummers, people that got into classical music, people that got into symphonic music and made that their career because they played metal when they were teenagers. And in fact, I, I mean, I should mention this, the, the, res, the uh, composer in residence of the, of the Winnipeg Symphony, uh, Harry Staphylakis, he, now, he's a composer. He's a classical, modern, contemporary composer, writes for orchestras and string quartets, but he's a metal guy. He's a guitar player, and that's nice. where he came to it from. He was, he was really into progressive metal, and that's how he got into this world of music that we all play. Yep. The same complex, same level of complexity in both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can. Uh, there's a band. I think they're called Night Witch. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't quite remember, but they they meld uh, symphony with metal, and it's just it sounds so to me delightful. Is not a word you would normally think of when it comes to metal, but that's how it works for me. Ryan just texted Night Wish. Pardon me. Thank you, Ryan, who's uh, texting. Uh, how about symphonic black metal? I'm not familiar with that. Are you familiar? Ever? Heard of that I'm not Julia? deeply familiar with it but Harry is I know because he's talked to me about it I don't need, I don't know if the the if what we're doing on the new music festival at the symphony is uh, posted yet so I don't know if I can even if I can say this but there is a symphonic uh, progressive metal component to the new music festival this year that's going to oh, be really cool it's okay. one of the things that we're exploring well i always get goosebumps just imagining uh like what you've got going on this weekend and tell folks a little bit more about ticket availability and and uh how things roll out that night is it a long show uh, does it does it take a is it one of those that feels like it, it just started by the time it ends 
It's going to be, it's, it's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of songs. We're going to be going through uh, all the different uh, periods of the Beatles. You know, I know that the guys in the band, they sort of change clothes and they change appearance and they, so they really try to get to the heart of that transformation uh, while involving the orchestra, but it's going to go by because these guys are incredible performers. Wonderful show. It's on, it's this Friday that's starting on the 21st, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The best way to get tickets is at our website. And uh, you're going to hear songs, you know, the songs you love, but the ones, those incredible songs that involve orchestra, you know, Penny Lane, that incredible trumpet solo, um, uh, Live and Let Die, we have that on there, oh. the Paul McCartney tune, uh, Imagine, the John Lennon tune, uh, Lonely, uh, Sgt. Peppers is all on there, all the Sgt. Peppers tunes uh, with the orchestra that are incredible, Eleanor Rigby with the string octet, I mean, these things that, you know, it's when you hear them live. I mean, there's one thing on the recording, but when you hear them live, it's a different experience because you actually see also what went into that. Like all those layers that are on the record, you can actually see them there on stage. And with Paul McCartney coming to town on the 28th, there's that kind of heightened excitement around the Beatles and then people may be listening to more Beatles music right now than they might otherwise. Absolutely. If you're, if you're going to the Paul McCartney show and you want to just get ready for it, you need to come to our show. A good primer. Yes. What about songs that, that you might, Beatles songs that you might not necessarily think of pairing with a symphony? Like, are you doing anything from the early days, like a, like a twist and shout? for example yeah absolutely we're getting we're we're going doing uh hard days night got to get you into my life uh what are some of the other yeah twist and shout uh, i want to hold your hand these kind of tunes that are yeah really like the early ones that are really kind of rock and roll but you know there's a way to also involve the symphony in those as well so yeah well i've seen uh i saw michael jackson tribute show that was paired with the symphony i've seen an elvis show and uh the pairing of the two it really is. Uh, it's it's magical, right? It's uh, you know the music that you know and love so well to see it performed live by somebody who's dedicated their life to doing it, and then when you add in the the symphony, it's like this added level of luxury that's really you can't duplicate it anywhere. Well, I think. it's in, you can't replicate it because you know Julian, you talk about being live. Speaking of live, you're going to be on stage. Oh. You and Jeff Braun, the Couch Potatoes, are going to be on stage with the WSO. Later on this season, we have to talk about this. What's going on? Yeah, Star yeah. Wars versus Star Trek. There, there's a. We've gotten the sense that there's a lot of buzz around this particular concert. I mean, it's really piqued the interest of a, of many, many different people, and we we keep hearing about it. So, I mean, I'm excited for it. Yeah, you've already put together the show, so we're excited to go over that. It's happening in February, uh, February 22nd to February 24th. You can get tickets for that at WSO.ca, and it's going to be hosted by me and Jeff Braun. So uh, hopefully you guys don't live to regret that. (laughs) (laughs) What did we do? (laughs) You'll be fantastic. Well, we need you. You guys are the experts. We need you guys. And, uh, you know, the music... From those movies, I mean, the whole reason to do it with the symphony is that the music is 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 incredible. It's crazy. I mean, it's so good, and um, it comes a lot of it, both from Star Trek and Star Wars, comes straight from those composers being influenced by the the music that we play all the time, all the classical symphonic repertoire, especially the stuff from the like nineteenth century and twentieth century. And so the difference is that Star the Star Wars music is all composed by one guy, John Williams, whereas the Star Trek music, they employed like a dozen different composers to to create the music for the TV series, all the different all the different TV series, all the different movies. 
And so each one has this kind of unique sound. Uh, so that's really the, the musical difference. Uh, and we'll have to just figure out the versus part. I don't know how that's going to work. but Yeah, I don't either because I think Jeff and I are both Star Wars guys. So we're gonna. One of us is gonna have to flip. Or we need to get a Star Trek person in the mix somehow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're gonna have to fight over who goes Star Trek. I guess. Maybe we'll take you for some EMDR and get you hypnotized (laughs) into believing that uh, Star Star Trek is your favorite, Brett. So this weekend, once again, Friday, September twenty first, Saturday, September twenty second, Sunday, September twenty third. Classical Mystery Tour, a tribute to the Beatles. Since its initial show in nineteen ninety six, Classical Mystery Tour has performed with more than 100 orchestras across the United States and around the world. So when you guys, when the symphony gets in a group like this that has performed with orchestras, is it uh, is there any awkwardness at first as you're trying to get to know each other or do they just kind of come right in and, and know exactly what they're doing? Oh, no, they're incredible professionals, just like our symphony players. We walk in the room, everyone knows exactly what they're doing, and uh, we just, you know, we just work to make the best show we can. Uh and uh, which is which is not difficult when you're working with musicians of that caliber, both the symphony players and uh, musicians in a in a group like the Classical Mystery Tour. I mean, it's very very smooth, and um, yeah, because the level is so high. Tickets available at wso.ca. It's going to be an awesome show. If you're a Beatles fan, or even if you're not a Beatles fan, it'll just be great music. Uh, like we said earlier, you don't have to be a fan of the Beatles to appreciate their influence on music and the importance of their music. And backed by the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, how can you go wrong with that? Julian Pelicano, conductor at the WSO. Thank you for joining us as always, man. Good to see you. Thank you guys very much. Always a pleasure to be here. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.